Well, a very slight review uh, can... I don't know what the best way to angle this board is. I'm just going to leave it there, I guess. But a very slight review. We're going to start here about the difference between meaning and significance. Meaning and significance. So when it comes to finding the meaning of a passage, we are looking... Ah, I spelled the whole word. We're looking for the author, author, intent of a passage to find the meaning of a passage. So Christian science, I can remember if this is what Mary Baker Eddy taught, uh, so now I'm, I've been talking about Christian science, I got it on my brain. But I, I think this was Mary Baker Eddy who said, when you go back and you read the Genesis account, and God named the first man Adam, we recognize that if you put a space between the first letter and the, the rest of his name, Adam was a dam. He was holding up sin until he fell and the dam broke and then sin poured out. Yeah, okay. I'm glad to hear groans and giggles from the audience because that is just so, so bad. Now, is that the meaning of Adam's name? Well, no. We know in Hebrew the word just it means man, right? And so we named him man, Adam. All right, we're looking for the intent of the divine author and the human author in a passage. That's where the meaning is found and what the author, capital A, the Holy Spirit, and author, lowercase a, the human author, Moses or whoever, what they intended the reader to understand. Now, significance is different, and uh, it's very related. You can't have one without the other, but it is different, and so this is what we're going to be focusing on today. Let me just give you a a brief definition of significance, where meaning is the author's intent, significance is the relevance for the reader. And what we're going to see today is there's a primary aspect and an expanded aspect to this. So uh, there's a primary significance to the initial readers, the original audience of the letter, and we'll look at several examples of that. And then there's an expanded significance as the Bible goes on and the Bible quotes itself and uses passages in other contexts. We see the significance expand of a passage as it gets applied to different people at different times, okay? A um, couple questions to start off before we get into our passages. Uh, what did the human authors understand? So, we're talking about meaning being the author and author intent, capital A and lowercase a authors, their intent. And I said in the first lesson I taught on this section a couple weeks ago that there's a total alignment between the divine author and the human author. The human author never went rogue from what God wanted him to say. What God wanted the human author to write, he wrote. The result of what came off of his pen was exactly what God wanted to communicate. Okay? Total alignment. But we recognize that the authors were not omniscient. So we're kind of going back and reviewing just a little bit, but to answer the question, what did the human authors understand? And we'll talk about what they didn't understand in a minute. But what did they understand? Well, they understood the meaning of their message. So we, we talked about this a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago where God didn't overtake the human author in such a way that they became like a robot and he operated apart from their own will or from their own desire or for their own context. You read through, you know, Paul's letters. Paul wasn't writing to churches that he just was totally unfamiliar with. I've never heard of the church of Philippi, Lord, but okay, I'll write to that church. I don't know what's going on there, but I'll just write what you're saying and just trust that that's what's happening. That's not how that worked. Paul obviously knew of that church very intimately. He knew of the situations there. He heard reports. And so he's writing a letter in his own context, from his own will, his own desire, his own thinking, though it was superintended by the Holy Spirit. And in addition to this, they understood the primary significance. So go back to Moses in your mind. When Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, or well, when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, and there it is, he's got this message from God, it's not like he had the Ten Commandments and said, now I have no idea what this means for us. He had a really, really good idea. In fact, he had a comprehensive idea of what this meant for Israel at that time. 
Okay? That was the primary significance. Why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? Well, at that time, Moses understood. He was given the message that was sent to the people. And in addition to the primary significance, you could also say, because these are all closely related, the application. So take one of the Ten Commandments, for example, honor your father and mother. There are lots of ways that this gets applied, but at a minimum base level, Moses understood, well, the children of Israel are to honor their parents in Israel. This is the code that God has given us on how we are to live, (coughs) that they are to recognize their parents as authorities, to respect them, to live in a way that honors them. Now, when we think about what the human authors did not understand, we'll just follow that same line of thinking, how Moses was given the Ten Commandments, that one specific commandment, is it commandment number five, honor your father and your mother? He knew that that was for Israel, the children of Israel, they were to obey their parents. But did he know that there would be this all nations church in the future, a local outpost in Ephesus, and Paul, an apostle called by God, would write to that church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, the start of it would say, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is the first commandment with the promise. He's quoting the Ten Commandments and applying it to the church. Well, Moses couldn't have seen that, right? He didn't understand that expanded significance. So when we think about what the human authors did not understand, it's mostly the expanded significance and application of their revelation, the revelation that God gave them. (coughs) Just like last week, I'm getting a cough again when I start teaching. Um, we, we looked at a passage a couple of weeks ago in 1 Peter 1, and Peter was saying that the prophets long ago, the prophets were given a revelation about the coming Messiah. And do you remember what it said in 1 Peter 1.10? What were they looking for as they were given revelation, these prophets? What did they want to know that they weren't told about the Messiah? Do you remember what it says? They made careful searches and inquiries... Okay, let's turn there. Let's turn there together. 1 Peter, toward the back of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This is an important ver- uh, passage to understanding how this all works. 1 Peter chapter 1, <coughs> verses 10 through 12. Would someone read that for us? 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 10 through verse 12. Go ahead, Mike. All right, what were they searching for according to these verses? Mainly verse 11. What were they looking for? Okay. So Isaiah 53 is a really easy example for this, right? Isaiah 53 could be called the first gospel. You go back 700 years before the time of Christ, and you read about the suffering servant in great detail about how this servant was going to suffer and die on behalf of the people bearing their sins. Now, Isaiah, when he was given that prophecy, he understood the meaning of the message, the message that was given to him by God, and the primary significance for Israel, that there was coming one who was going to take on the sins of the people. Did he know that Jesus was going to come 700 years later? He did not. Did he know that the person would be Jesus Christ in the sense that, oh, that's what he looks like? No. No, he didn't know what person or time. That's what we're seeing here in 1 Peter. They were searching for what person and what time. And as time went on, we have an expanded significance of that passage where we look back at Isaiah 53 with more knowledge We look back at Isaiah 53 with more information about how this played out in history. We have more details of the storyline. 
And so we have the great advantage of looking back and saying, yeah, he was talking about Jesus Christ. Now, that's the expanded significance, but it doesn't change that original meaning, does it? The meaning is still the same of Isaiah 53. We don't go back to Isaiah 53 and say, oh, well, that changes the meaning of the message. The meaning of the message is is exactly the same. We just now have more details and see how it all fits together. And so this is a key point that I want you to write down. I don't have a specific section for it on your sheet, but, um, but I want you to write this down. This is an extremely important point. Expansion of significance, and I'm going to abbreviate there, never alters the original meaning. Expansion of significance in Scripture of any given passage never alters the original meaning of a passage. The original meaning always stays intact as more revelation is given. It's meaning that stays right where it is as more revelation comes along with its own meaning and is added to it. If you think back last week to the exercise with the paintings, and we have the squares of the paintings, uh, you could see... I think the first two you got pretty good. You could see what the painting was, even though you didn't have the whole picture, because there were squares there from the painting where you could see, okay, that's Starry Night by Van Gogh, or or, that's the Mona Lisa. And then when we filled in the whole painting and brought in more squares to fill it out, that didn't change what was there initially, did it? Those things were still there. It just had other squares come alongside to fill out the picture. And that's like the Old Testament a progressive revelation from Job and the writings of Moses, on and on it goes. You have the painting being filled in more and more throughout the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament and the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the letters written by Paul and John and Peter and others, you've got the whole picture being filled in as we achieve sola scriptura, the completion of the canon. And that's the idea here, is that as more revelation comes along, perhaps expanding the significance of earlier passages, the original meanings of the verses, of the passages, whatever you're looking at in the Old Testament or wherever, those original meanings remain intact. Those meanings are never changed, okay? And you can see the problem we'd run into if those meanings were changed, because then you have competition between the Bible. You've got a lack of harmony. You've got disunity in the Bible. And so we want to maintain unity, knowing that God is consistent, that God reveals a consistent message throughout Scripture. And uh, there are several issues, or several doctrines, rather, not issues, several doctrines, where we see this kind of thing at play, Um, the expansion of significance, the adding of details to the storyline. When you think about prophecies about Christ, not just His first coming, but His second coming, we can look in the Old Testament and see a lot of prophecies about Jesus' coming, the government's going to be on his shoulder, he's going to rule and reign, stand on the Mount of Olives, split in two, all those things. But then you've got the writings of the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation, but more than that even, where we've added to that, not changing what was originally written, but adding to that picture, filling out the picture more to where we can see what that will look like. And yet we recognize that that second coming is still future to us. And as it happens in real time, there will be an expansion of significance happening then, that things that we don't know that are going to happen, that are going to take place. But that won't change anything that was revealed before, okay? It's all just adding up as time goes on, okay? Does that make sense somewhat? (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, let's start looking at some passages. I want to give you three ways that significance is expanded, particularly how an Old Testament passage has expanded significance in the New Testament, all right? That's where this usually, this conversation usually um, is found, is between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the first way that expansion uh, or that significance is expanded is by literal fulfillment, and we are not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think we get this uh, pretty clearly. But go ahead and turn to Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2. You can see on your sheet there, there are several in Matthew 2 that we're going to look at. But we're going to start with Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Everyone turn there. And before we read from Matthew, I want to read to you from the book of Micah. 
In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this Old Testament prophet said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So in the book of Micah, this prophet has said that from Bethlehem, from the town of Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem, there will be one whose days are from eternity, who will go forth, who will be ruler in Israel. Pretty amazing. Now someone read Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Go ahead when you got it. Yeah. All right, so you see in Matthew's gospel here, he is applying this passage to the birth of Jesus Christ. There's a literal fulfillment taking place. Micah said, there will be one born in Bethlehem whose days are from eternity. You will be a ruler in Israel. Jesus comes along. He's born in Bethlehem. His days are from eternity. He's to be a ruler in Israel. Literal fulfillment. That makes sense, right? Uh, that's where your mind almost always goes when you read that the scripture may be fulfilled. You think, okay. It's just a literal fulfillment. That's what it says, and that's what happened. There's another one I'll just mention to you. We don't need to turn there. But in uh, Luke 22, Jesus takes a verse from Isaiah 53. The verse in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says that the suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors. That's the prophecy from Isaiah. He'll be numbered with the transgressors. Well, then Jesus in Luke 22 says quite plainly that that passage is about him and that he's on his way to fulfill it. He's going to die among thieves, right? He's, hung, he's hanged there between two, two thieves. So that's a literal fulfillment. Exactly what was said, that's exactly what happened. Literal, literal fulfillment, we, we see that in a, a variety of places. Any questions about literal fulfillment? I think that one's pretty straightforward. All right, now the next one is a little more difficult. It's going to be labeled correspondence. There are no great words for these things. But in these instances, we will sometimes see that the New Testament says, so that the Scripture may be fulfilled, and it quotes the Scripture. And then you, you look at, okay, it's tying this thing that happened in the New Testament back with this thing that happened in the Old Testament. I, what? Who? What? <laughs> and you're, you're thinking, why did, how did that happen? I wouldn't have connected those two things. Uh, how, how do they get there? And so this is mostly, we see this mostly with Jesus and the church, because in a sense, Jesus is the perfect Israelite. He's the ultimate Israelite. And we see that He's fulfilling all the things that everybody in Israel was called to do. Just take the law, for example. Israel was called to obey the law. How many Israelites obeyed the law? overall history perfectly. <laughs> Only Jesus, right? Only Jesus. So he's the ultimate Israelite. And then you have this church that we're a part of, this new covenant community of believers in Jesus Christ, and we are God's people, aren't we? We're God's people. And then you see times where there are phrases or statements or allusions to Israel then applied to this new covenant community. We've got to figure out how all this works. How does all this work together? So let's look at some specific examples. In, uh, still stay in Matthew 2 there. In Jeremiah 31, 15, Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah is saying in, in this chapter that there are these young Israelite men who are being taken captive to Ramah. And it's causing great distress in the nation as you can imagine, right? They're being taken captive. They're young men. So there's wailing and crying as the Babylonians are taking them captive. They're weeping for the children of Israel. Now, let's look at Matthew 2. Would someone read verses 16 to 18? Because now Matthew's going to quote that passage about young men in Israel being taken captive. Who would read Matthew 2, 16 to 18? All right, so this is one of those places, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, when you say, 
In verse 17, Matthew says that the Scripture spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. And you think, what? I didn't even know that was a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. (laughs) Because what was Jeremiah doing in that passage? He was stating a fact at his time. So this is going back to the meaning of his passage. He understood the meaning of it. He understood the primary significance of it. He understood the primary application of it. He's saying, our nation is weeping and crying because our young men are being carried off by the Babylonians. And this is about 500 B.C. Well, now 500 years later, Matthew comes along and says, that Scripture is being fulfilled by Herod ordering that from two years old and under, all these male children are going to be slain. So what is Matthew doing? Well, Matthew is not thinking, yeah, Jeremiah, he was just writing stuff that had no significance to his time. He was just writing prophecies, and then this was really just about now. He's not doing that. Um, He's not ignoring the original context of what Jeremiah said, but he's making a correspondence. And again, these aren't perfect words for these things, but he's he's making correspondence and saying what was going on in Israel at that time is extremely similar to what's going on here under Herod at this time. And so, in a sense, this Scripture is being fulfilled. There's a correspondence between that Scripture and what's happening now. And in God's good providence, in God's great design, He designed history, He ordered history, He set it up this way, and He's, through His Holy Spirit, guiding Matthew to make that connection. But it's not something we ever would have connected on our own, is it? And I don't think it's something that we have authority to say, because, you know, the abortion culture in America now, and how so many children are being slain, I don't think we have the authority then to go and say, yes, the... What was spoken through Jeremiah is being fulfilled in our day that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. I don't think we can go as far to say that Scripture is being fulfilled. Now, can we make application? Absolutely. And we can preach from that passage and say there's a similar thing happening in our day. But it seems like Matthew is making an inspired connection here between these two events, a correspondence between the two things. But you see how difficult this gets? Because that's not a literal fulfillment. Jeremiah was just speaking of what was happening in his day. And now Matthew is saying that that's being fulfilled in his day. It could be pretty difficult, huh? So correspondence is, I think, the best word that we can use for that. And then we have a a more interesting one. Let me read to you, stay in Matthew 2, but let me read to you from Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. (laughs) This is God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, speaking of Israel. He says in Hosea 11.1, 1, when, yeah, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now thinking about what Hosea was saying, what does that mean? Out of Egypt I called my son. What, what did that mean to Hosea? What was the original meaning of that message? Out of? And what were they doing in Egypt? Yeah. And how many times over and over again in the Old Testament do we see God bringing back to their minds, I delivered you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That was their national salvation event, wasn't it? And over and over again, they're reminded of that event. Now, Matthew 2, verses 14 and 15. Someone want to read those for us? So we're backing up just a little bit, but... All right, so now you're starting to see the complexities here, right? Is he saying what Hosea said had no real original meaning, this is the true meaning? I don't think he's saying that, okay? I've been pretty transparent, I hope, with you that I take single meaning of every passage and that meanings are upheld, no meanings are changed. But we have to figure out, well, what's he doing? Because again, he's using fulfillment language, isn't it? Isn't he? Look again at verse 15, this was to fulfill what had happened. And again, it seems to me that there's a correspondence happening here. The text about showing God's, or the text about God's deliverance, not about showing, but the text about God's deliverance of Israel is being applied to the person of Jesus Christ going to Egypt and eventually being called back to go to Israel. And so then you start wrestling with difficult things in the text, like, so does that mean Jesus is Israel? 
that's a leap that some make, and you have to work that out. You've got to figure that out. And this isn't the only time that a word about the nation of Israel was applied directly to Christ. You can perhaps remember in Luke chapter 2, when it was said of Jesus that He was appointed as a light to the nations, a light to the nations and a revelation to the Gentiles. Well, what was being quoted there was Isaiah 49.6, and that was Israel's role. The nation of Israel was called in Isaiah 49 to be a light to the nations. Now, they weren't very successful, were they? (laughs) In fact, you could say they were entirely unsuccessful, absolutely unsuccessful. And then Jesus comes along, and that passage about the commission given to Israel is applied to Christ. Then you have this passage that we're just looking at from Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, applied to Christ. Well, this is interesting. So what, here's how I, I would sum it up. Here's the big idea. What Israel was to be, Jesus was and now is. Okay? What Israel was to be, Jesus was and now is. Israel failed in her mission, but Jesus, again, remember he's the ultimate Israelite, the only perfect Israelite who ever lived. Jesus accomplishes the will of God and is thus able to mediate God's promises from that standpoint because he's the perfect Israelite, the ultimate mediator, the perfect one. And so let me break this down and maybe help you walk through that leading back up to it. Was Jesus an Israelite? That's an easy question. Okay. Was Jesus a perfect Israelite? Okay. Is Jesus Israel? (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Is Jesus the fulfillment of all of Israel's purposes? okay, well, this gets kind of tricky, okay? It gets tricky because uh, there are some senses yes and some senses no. Some senses yes and some senses no, all right? And so we just have to think through this slowly and clearly. In some senses, yes, he perfectly kept and fulfilled the law, didn't he? He said it is finished, and those who are now under grace are not under the law. And why is that? Well, because the ultimate Israelite took care of that for us, didn't he? Aren't we thankful? The ultimate Israelite took care of the law for us, and so we're not under the law, but we're totally under grace. We understand that Jesus is the way by which men now enter into covenant with God. You enter into covenant with God, not through the Mosaic covenant, but through Jesus Christ. So related to the last idea about fulfilling of the law, but we go to a person for covenant with God that He shows His covenant love to us through the person and work of Christ. Jesus even connects us to the Abrahamic covenant as we believe and are given righteousness based on our faith. Remember what it said of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, one of the most quoted verses? He believed and... Very good. It was counted to him as righteousness. And so as we believe in Christ, it's counted to us as righteousness. And those who are by faith are children of Abraham in that sense, aren't we? Genesis chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> and so... Um, we have these major themes. And in fact, Hebrews 8, you can go ahead and turn there if you want, Hebrews chapter 8, we have an amazing correspondence here. In Hebrews 8, starting in verse 7, talking about the new covenant, the author of Hebrews connects us to the new covenant itself. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the greatest, or from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. So what's the author doing? Well, he's connecting this new covenant promise made to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah, now to believers in Jesus Christ. Are we members of a new covenant as Gentiles? Yes. And who is that new covenant promised to in Jeremiah 31? Nope. Yeah, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, what we have going on then is this original meaning that was given that the house of Israel, the house of Judah will be converted, they will enter into relationship with God, they will enter into covenant with God, they will be saved, and there's more to it than just what's in Hebrews 8. You've actually got to talk about land, they'll be back in their land. You've got all that going on, but then when we go to Hebrews, that marker is awful. When we go to Hebrews, we see an expanded significance of this passage where now the new covenant community made not just of Israelites, but all nations who believe in Jesus Christ, these promises are also theirs. We've been included. We've been grafted in. That's the language of Romans 11. And so that's an amazing thing that's going on. There's a correspondence happening and a a significance being expanded. And we have these promises for us. You read through Hebrews 8 and you look down through, and we're living in this new covenant as it's quoted from Jeremiah 31 here. But you do notice that the author does stop short of certain promises that are in the Old Testament made to Israel. And he's not saying that all those promises that were made to Israel are now erased. Because I don't believe those meanings are going to be altered, and I don't see any evidence in the New Testament that they look to alter those original meanings. But those meanings are held in place even though the significance is now expanded to all nations. All nations were not included in that promise in Jeremiah 31. But God, through His progressive revelation, has expanded that promise to all people who believe in Jesus. There are certain promises made to physical descendants of Abraham that aren't given to spiritual descendants of Abraham. Again, you think of the mass conversion of Jews that's going to happen at the end. It's only the the nation of Israel that that's promised to, isn't it? We don't see a mass conversion of, of, you know, Kenyans or Americans or anybody else. Okay, there's that promise. And again, the land promises too. And so we, we say, okay, well, those meanings are upheld, and we have these other revelations that have come alongside to help fill out the picture, never altering what was there. Again, thinking back to our paintings illustration from last week, hopefully that sticks in your head and is helpful. Yeah, there are certain, definitely certain people who say, um, and thankfully this is a relative minority in Christianity who say, yeah, all the Old Testament stuff is just, it's dead to us. They, 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 want to, they want to take the view, well, we're not under the law, but under grace, so that means we just do whatever we want, and the Holy Spirit's going to lead us exactly however we feel, not based on His Word, particularly the Old Testament Word. Whereas we say, no, there's, there's very much importance in that first 66% of your Bible, right? We don't want to write off the first two-thirds of the Bible. Um, But we do recognize that not all the passages in there have their primary significance in us. So again, going back to this new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, the primary significance was to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. But what do we see in Hebrews 8? Expanded significance to all who believe in Jesus. That doesn't go back and change this. It adds to it. It adds to it. Okay? So when now we've kind of gotten off the beaten path from uh, Matthew and Hosea. But when you think about out of Egypt I called my son, I think this is all pretty related. So the person of Jesus corresponds to the nation of Israel, out of Egypt I called my son, in the sense that he, as God's child, you know, Hosea, he's saying, my son Israel, and here in Matthew it's being applied to my son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. God's child was in Egypt before being called back to the land of Israel, and so Matthew is not setting forth some statement of, okay, this is how you're to read the Bible now. You're supposed to find a whole bunch of changed, hidden meanings. I don't think that's it. I think he's adding a, he's he's making a divine correspondence, a divine connection. He's applying a certain passage under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's not making a, a pattern for us to go out finding our own connections like that. 
He's making a connection there, not some sweeping notion that Jesus is now Israel and all the promises have been fulfilled in Jesus that were made to physical descendants of Abraham. I don't think that's what's going on. And so when we see instances of such correspondences that are kind of eyebrow-raising, like, whoa, I can't, that's interesting that he did that, that that author did that. Remember that they're not patterns for us to follow, okay? Um, they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit adding new revelation to existing revelation. And that's why, if you remember last week, we talked about the um, three different views, three basic camps. You've got the hidden meaning camp, who believes the Bible's full of hidden meanings. And you've got the other end where I tend to lean, which is there are no hidden meanings. Every passage has an obvious meaning and no meanings ever contradicted. But then you have a middle group that tries to mediate and say, well, there are some hidden meanings, but they're only brought about through inspired prophets. And I, I'm definitely more comfortable with that view where it's like, okay, like what Matthew did, is he pulling out a hidden meaning in Hosea? I don't, I'm not comfortable saying that, but I'm comfortable being around people who say that's what he's doing, but only he could do it and we shouldn't do it, <laughs> right? When, when people go as far to say is, yeah, and he was setting a pattern for us to do it, yeah, you can get into really weird places in a hurry, okay? All right, um, well, for the sake of time, let me just mention, do you have Deuteronomy 30 on your sheet after that one, Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10? Okay, um, turn to Romans 10 real quick, just on your way back toward the middle of your Bible, look at Romans 10. We do have a quote from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Romans 10, verses 6 through 8. I should probably start at verse 5. Romans 10, 5, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So what Paul is doing here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. And you can check that out if you want to do a further study this week. Uh, This is another instance where I think he's making a correspondence. He's not saying this is what Moses was only talking about all along, but he's taking something that had an original meaning with a primary significance and a primary application, and he's expanding on that in the New Covenant. He's expanding on that. He's not going back and saying this is the hidden meaning that was there all along, but he's saying this has significance for the church in light of Jesus Christ. And so he's taking an Old Testament passage and making a correspondence. Now, the last one I want to talk about is implication. You could also call this application. In fact, if you're taking notes, just write that next to it in parentheses. You could say application. And what we're talking about here, it's different than literal fulfillment, and it's different than correspondence. What we see with these is that although a specific command or a specific notion is not explicitly laid out in a passage, a command or a notion is drawn from that passage by another passage. So let me just give you an an idea or example outside of Scripture. So if someone says, hey, I'm going to be gone for two weeks, someone says to his neighbor, I'm going to be gone for two weeks, could you look after my house? And the neighbor for the next two weeks goes by the house every day as he's walking his dog to check on it. And while he's checking on the house, the dog does his business in the yard. And the man comes home after two weeks and he finds all kinds of treats left in the yard and big brown circles left in the yard, and he says, I thought I asked you to look after my house. And he said, oh, I did. You never said anything about your yard. Okay. Now, what was implied in that initial request? Could you look after my house? Well, the whole thing, right? Not just make sure the physical structure is fine. Do whatever you burn the whole yard down if you want, right? That's not what was included in that. But there's an implication there. And so, we see this in Scripture as Scripture uses Scripture. This is pretty interesting. And there are some implications that are quite natural or some applications that are quite natural, and others are a bit eyebrow-raising. So let's uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. That's where we'll look at our first one. And I'll read to you first Deuteronomy 25. After I read Deuteronomy 25, who will read 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11 for us? Who's got it? 
Stan. <laughs> um, okay, I will, so to get to 1 Corinthians 9, it'll be verses 9 through 11, and let me read to you first Deuteronomy 25.4. Deuteronomy 25.4 says this, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's all it says. All right, stand. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. All right, so Paul is using a verse from the law given to Israel, and this is you know, a pretty clear case in point that we shouldn't write off the first two-thirds of the Bible. We shouldn't write off the Old Testament because there are implications for us. Now, of course, again, I would say with the, um, you know, with the asterisk, I guess, Paul is an inspired apostle making this connection. Now, we can make applications and implications and connections and stuff, but Paul here is, is seeing an application from this um, law that says, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Now, did God give that initial command to Israel because he was concerned about the happiness of oxen in Israel? No. Uh, they're not made in the image of God. They don't have the same relationship to work as human beings have to work. Human beings created to work, to, to cultivate, all right? Oxen are animals. They're creatures uh, lower than human creatures. And so he wasn't concerned about making the oxen happy. But there was a recognition, of course, in receiving that law that if the oxen are able to eat as they work, they're going to be more productive. And that will be a blessing to the people who own the oxen. That'll be a blessing to the nation. There'll be more produce happening in the nation. And that's the heart of that is God cares about people, His, his people, more so than animals. It's not like He doesn't care about animals, but we're made in His image. And so He cares especially about the flourishing of His nation, Israel. And so Paul then is making a connection and saying, okay, well, there, that has an implication for those who labor at preaching and teaching in the gospel. Those who work really hard in the church, in getting the gospel out, it's going to be a blessing to everybody if that person is taken care of as he goes along. There's an implication there. And so we have a principle found with oxen that can be directly applied to human beings because God cares even more about human beings. So if this is true of animal workers, Paul says, how much more is it true of human workers, those who are made in the image of God? And that's the point that he's making. One I mentioned to you earlier, uh, the start of the class was Exodus and Ephesians. You could turn to Ephesians with me if you want. Uh, Ephesians 6, the initial command from the law is in Exodus 20, verse 12, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And then you go over to Ephesians 6. And would someone read it? Joseph, you didn't get to read earlier. Would you read this one? Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 3. And remember, this is Ten Commandments given to Israel. It had a primary significance and application in Israel. But now we're going to see an expanded significance. Go ahead. 6, 1 to 3. Amen. Amen. Okay, so all children in the church are to honor their parents, recognizing it was the first commandment with a promise. That's what Paul's saying here. That's, he's expanding the significance. That, that wasn't just for Israel. That's now been expanded to you. And there's an implication here about the way we relate to our parents. If we heed and follow God's command, then generally speaking, it will go well with us, right? This is like uh, the book of Proverbs. We recognize that these are general statements about if you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then that will happen. And this is what's happening with this uh, passage as it's being applied to the church. And you can think, uh, too, of the Ten Commandments. Why, why are we not Sabbatarians in this church, those who still observe the Sabbath day? That was one of the Ten Commandments, number four. Remember the Sabbath day, for it is holy. Why, why don't we hold to it the same way that Israel held to it. Okay, so you've got a changing of the day 
being implied in the New Testament, that the church met on Sundays um, and that it was their, their practice to recognize the first day of the week as the Lord's day. But what about the fact that it's in the Ten Commandments? All other nine of the Ten Commandments we hold to in pretty much the same way that Israel did, and they're all moral in a lot of ways, but why not that fourth one about the Sabbath? Carol? Okay, so does that mean we get to covet and to steal and to commit adultery? Okay, okay. Okay, all right. So, so why, not, why are we not remembering the Sabbath? Because you know that even though we switched the day, there's still more that we could be doing to recognize the Sabbath, like ceasing from work and going to places where people work. And some people have a conviction about that, but I think most here don't. So, well, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament as commands for the church. The only one that's not is remember the Sabbath day for it is holy. In fact, we see a direct connection in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That, of course, He fulfilled the law, but in particular, He fulfilled the Sabbath. And we have our Sabbath rest in Christ. And so we don't have that significance expanded to us in the church. We see a primary significance and application for remember the Sabbath day and the Ten Commandments to Israel. That's why it was given, was for them. But then we don't see the church being called to remember the Sabbath. But we do see the significance expanded in the sense that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And so every day is a Sabbath if we're in Christ. We've ceased from our works as God did from His. Okay. And we see all sorts of implications in Scripture. When we teach, when we study, we make all, all kinds of applications. Uh, you know, for instance, in First Peter a couple of weeks ago, as we're going through that on Wednesday nights, it talked about not being drunk. Well, we recognize that when it says don't be drunk, that doesn't mean, but get high all that you want. Snort cocaine every day. Yeah, that's, that's not what's being said. It's all inebriations, right? We're to have control of our bodies, to be good stewards of our bodies. That's a, a rightful implication of that passage, all right? And so uh, it's necessary to do that. We just need to be a little careful because sometimes you see people, especially in a counseling situation or something, they'll pull out a passage to give advice to somebody and you'll think, Ooh, I, don't, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, that's a little, bit, a little bit of a stretch, okay? So you have to be really careful about that. Now, to wrap up today, Katrina, you want to hand things out one more time? I've got a little uh, card for you. This summarizes what we've gone over the last three weeks. It's like a cheat sheet, and it's what I've labeled it. And you can keep this with you and look over it this week, because next week we are going to start looking at some test cases and have you do some of the work, Okay as we discover how Scripture uses Scripture and how we are to interpret rightly. You'll see on this sheet, there are some things that are in blue and other things are in black. It's kind of hard to see the difference there. Um, at the top of the sheet, as things are listed out, I've got a few things that are labeled 1, 2, 3, and 4. I say a few things labeled 1, 2, 3, 4. I have four things labeled 1, 2, 3, and 4. And this is the four-step interpretation process that we learned from Mr. Friel when we were watching the videos. And this is giving you just a quick reference, quick definition of what those four steps are, along with other things that apply to those four steps. And then at the bottom, I have that table for you where you can see the summary of the different ways that Christians view how Scripture uses Scripture. And the one that's in blue, the single meaning, fixed meaning, that's where I tend to lean. Now... I, I say I lean that direction because no matter what view you take, there are going to be some really difficult passages where you're just looking at that saying, boy, that's weird. <laughs> you know, uh, that's really strange. And uh, in those cases, I mean, you just have to say, I'm just not omniscient. I don't know why that connection happened. But what I do know for certain is that the overwhelming majority of cases in the New Testament, when the Old Testament is referenced, it's upholding the original meaning. There are some, I think it's 350 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and all but just a handful totally uphold the original meaning and don't make us think twice, really. But we do have a hand, that handful, and you start going through that handful, and you're saying, okay, well, this is interesting. What do I do with that? And so you wrestle with it a little bit, and you're never going to get to a place where you feel like, oh, I perfectly understand this, and that's okay. That's okay. But wrestle with it and see the factors at play and uh, be a good student of Scripture, okay? 
Any other thoughts or questions as we have just a minute left? Thank you for handing those out, Katrina. Appreciate it. Other thoughts or questions? In the 60 seconds that are remaining? Right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a nine, ten-year-old child who made a profession of faith and was a sweet kid who went to Sunday school class, loved the Lord, and, well, we have this promise that says your days will be prolonged if you obey your parents. Well, again, we fall back on recognizing, uh, you could say, truth-isms, meaning this is generally how it works in the world. Um, Again, going back to Proverbs, you think of the lazy glutton. Uh, lazy, glutton, what are some other words that are used of that guy, fool? It says generally how his life's going to turn out. But do you know any lazy gluttons who are foolish, who are doing pretty well in the world's eyes? We have a lot of them in government, I think. <clears throat> so you look around and you think, okay, well, that, what's up with that? Well, we recognize it's a, there's a general truth to that. And we recognize, too, that the way that our flesh or the way that the world defines certain things isn't always the way God defines certain things. But it is difficult when, yeah, you, ha- you have a passage like that and say, well, this was this promise. But the, you have to challenge yourself and think, okay, does that mean God's going to supernaturally protect every child and not let anything bad ever happen to any child who honors his parents? Well, no. And is any child ever perfect in honoring his parents? Well, no. And so we, we recognize both of those things, and that helps to take the edge off. It, it will never... Free the soul from the anguish of questions and situations like that, because those are really, really difficult. But you can at least start to see, okay, well, Scripture's not here saying you're going to turn into Superman if you honor your parents. That's not what it says, okay? All right, well, let's pray and then um, have some time of fellowship. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word, Your faithfulness, Your gentleness with us, Your kindness. We ask, Lord, that today we would all be encouraged and built up in our faith as we sing and look into your word some more together, seeking to honor you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.